Hello, welcome back to the Pulpit of Pew podcast and this week's adult Bible study as we continue and finish the book of 1 John. Our series on the epistles of John is not over. We'll go to 2 John and 3 John next, which are just one chapter, so probably two weeks, but but we will wrap up the book of 1 John this week. But before we get to that recording, I want to encourage you or ask you that if you're a frequent listener to the podcast, would you just hit subscribe on it? It helps more than you think. You think all it is is pushing a button. It does help if you would hit subscribe. And then also, if you would leave a review, that'd be great. If you like to read things, I wrote a blog post this week at bradmcclure.org, and I wrote about making memories in a, on a rainy day with my kids. And maybe that's something to interest you. If you want to check it out, you can go to bradmcclure.org, O-R-G. Well, without further ado, we're going to get into this week's study, 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. We're going to finish out the book. John's got some great instruction for us, telling us what we can know as Christians today. So here it is. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5. We are made our way to verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, all the way to verse 13. And last week when we ended, he said this. He, he gave this phrase. He said, He that hath the Son, capital S, hath life. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have eternal life. And he that hath not the Son of God, hath not life. This entire book, he's been writing around two themes, a theme of fellowship with Christ, walking in fellowship with him, but then the, also the theme of assurance of salvation. I don't think it's whether or not you're saved, but it's assurance of salvation. And there are many believers that struggle with, am I saved or not? I may have told this story before, but I, we, I was in a church and a, a lady who was probably in her mid-70s, a deacon's wife, a lady that had helped her husband and others start about two or three other churches, came to me in tears one, one Sunday after a service and said, I just don't know if I'm saved. And I said her name and I talked to her a little bit. And the first thing you do when someone says that that's been in church, you don't go, what? I can't believe it. All right. That's not a great start. So I pulled her aside and, and uh, with some others and we begin to talk and and I just asked her, why do you believe you're not saved? And come to find out, she just wasn't feeling saved. Now, you, we all know this. Emotions go up and down, do they not? Did you, have you seen emotions go up and down in your own life this week about different things, maybe? Um, so emo my emotions went up and down a little bit this week when a car decided not to run and I'm walking in the rain and things like that. So yeah, I was a little bit up and down myself. And so emotions can go up and down, but it happens with our spiritual life, too. Sometimes we just don't feel saved. And and in her specific case, there had been some, some sins, some sins in her life that had just been dominating her. Sweet lady, 77 years old, but some sin that had been dominating her life. In her mind, she thought, I can't be saved if I'm struggling with this sin. And she just thought, maybe I'd never been saved this whole time. And as we worked through that and talked through that, um, she got her assurance back. Why did she get her assurance back? Because she got her fellowship back with Christ. So assurance and fellowship tend to go one and one. It's not a matter of did I lose my salvation, but assurance and fellowship come together. Now, the reason I said all that is because look at verse 13. He tells us at the very end of this letter, he says, These things, so everything we've read so far, have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So he said, I'm writing to you Christians. Because those Christians are the ones that believe on the name of the Son of God. 
So he says, I've written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God. Here's why. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. I love this verse because this verse is a great verse to go to with a new Christian sometimes. And for those that maybe came from a false uh, religion or false teaching that you can't really know if you're saved. No, this, he says, this whole letter that we've read, he said, I've written this whole thing so that you can know that you have eternal life. I want you to know it. You can know today that you're saved. You don't have to sit in church and think, oh, I hope I'm saved. There's some denominations that teach that you can lose your salvation. And in, in counseling with some of those that came from those that denomination or some that are still in that denomination, they sit, they struggle every day. Like, am I saved or am I not saved? And what if, what if the rapture happens and I'm in sin? Or what, what if, I, you know, I, I just, some things that I've done, am I really, and there are people that wrestle with that. And if you've not been one, be thankful. But if you wrestle with whether or not you're saved, you understand that that kind of paralyzes you. That, that does something to your emotions. I remember as a, as a child struggling with that, and I would lay in bed at night thinking, am I really going to go to heaven if I died in my sleep? And I would think that's all the time. And I wrestled with that as a child some. But we have to come to grips with what the scripture says. And he says, I've written this whole letter so that you can know that you have eternal life. You can know it. You can go over to, to the book of John in chapter 10 when Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life. Now, I like the start of that verse. What does that tell me? If he gives it, that's a gift, right? If I'd have got Ryan a gift for his birthday today, and I didn't, okay? <laughs> I should have. Our wives do that good, but I, I don't. I saw Facebook. It was his birthday. I said, hey, it's my friend's birthday. I should have known that. But, but then I don't send it on Facebook because it looks like you saw it on Facebook. I just tell the class, but I send it in text in a very creative way. But if I would have got him a gift, and I've said this before, but if I said, hey, here's your gift for your birthday, man. Happy birthday. He's like, thanks. I go, well, actually, it's $25. <laughs> I'm like, what? That's not a gift. Jesus said, I give. It's something I give to you. It's free. I give unto you eternal life. You receive it by faith. I give unto you eternal life. And he says, the next phrase says, and you shall, and you shall never perish. That's red letters. So if Jesus tells me I'm giving you something and you'll never perish, but then I end up perishing one day, I can look back at a holy God and say, that didn't make sense. You told me I'd never perish. I received it by faith and now I'm perishing. Now, I, that's, that's a hypothetical situation that's never going to happen. But the idea is that another verse that shows us we can know we have eternal life and we... we you're not going to lose your salvation. He says, so our lives, when we live our, cons our lives constantly wondering, am I saved or am I not saved? That dominates your mind. And what that does is it hinders the rest of your Christian walk. You, you struggle serving God because you're not going to want to stand up and teach a class. If you're, if you're struggling in your own spirit, am I really saved? You, you're not going to, sometimes people just continue to stop coming to church. Like, well, I just don't know. And, and, the, and it's just a snowball. This thing start happening and we stop serving. We stop doing anything. Our emotions start struggling because we're wrestling with the anxiety of, am I really saved or not? And John says, hey, I've written this whole letter that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it today. If you're saved, you can have confidence that you're a Christian. You don't have to doubt that. We'll come back to that. But look at verse 14. He said, there's a second thing you can know. So once you have that assurance that, hey, I am a Christian, I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I've followed the Bible, I'm saved. Do you know, he says, secondly, you can have confidence in your prayer life then. He says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hears us, see that same word there? 
And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions, the prayers that we desire of him. So I like his order here because he's saying, I want you to know that you can, you can have an eternal life. And when you're struggling with your salvation, you don't spend much time praying because you're up and down with your emotions and worry. But once you get that settled, now you can realize, hey, God answers your prayer. God hears your prayers. God wants you to talk to him. God loves when you talk to him. It says in Proverbs that God delights in the prayers of the righteous. And so when you pray, it, it is something that, that honors God. Yes, it's something that God has told us to do, but God loves to hear from you. You say, why would a God who's created the most beautiful things of this world care about the sound of my thoughts or voice? Why would he care? Because he's a loving God. You got to realize before he created everything, not before, but after he created everything, he created us and he put within us a soul and he fellowshiped with man. That's what he wanted. God doesn't go around. He cares for the things of this world. We know he takes care of the sparrows. He takes care, but he cares deeply for you. He died for you. He didn't die for this world. He died for you. I mean, the world system and mountains and birds. He died for you. He loves you. And so we can know that if we have, we can have confidence that when you pray, God will hear your prayer. Now he gives some, he gives some qualifications. We've talked about all of this in, in studies of prayer, but he says, if we ask anything according to his will. So there's an out sometimes. If you're in a kind of an anxious prayer, this is your out. You're like, well, I don't, I want to pray, but I just don't know if this is God's will. I've said that as an anxious prayer probably a million times. Well, I really want to pray about this, but I just don't know if it's God's will. Okay. Well, there's a, you, if you can filter, it's not a message on prayer today, but you can filter it. Am, am I praying this for selfish reasons? Or if you're praying for a million dollars and you don't need it, you're probably being a little bit selfish. And that's an extreme thing. But are you praying for a very selfish reason? If I'm praying for somebody to be saved, is that the devil's will? So it's pretty safe bet that that's going to be God's will. I don't think it's God's against. If us praying for Don, who's got who's fallen and he's hit off this tractor and all these problems, I don't think that's a problem. That's not a selfish thing. So those are pretty simple ones. Sometimes it's when we pray about ourselves, like, well, I just don't know if I should pray about this. Does God care for you? Yes. Does God want to meet those needs? So a lot of times it's not we're outside of the will. I think there's sometimes where it comes into play, we're maybe praying for someone that's sick or maybe they maybe they have terminal cancer. How do we handle that? Here's how I usually pray for them. I pray for them that, that God God's will would be done. There are times when I'll pray and I'll literally say this, God, I don't have, I don't know your will. I don't know your will. All I know is my will. And in my will, I want to see them healed. I want to see them cured. I want to see them alive. But God, I don't know the greater will in this situation, so I trust you. Your will be done. Isn't that what Jesus prayed one time when he said, Thy will be done, not mine? So that it's okay. You say, well, I just don't know God's will. Okay, tell God that. God, I don't know your will right now. You've not made it clear to me. I don't know. So the best I know how, I'm praying because that's what you tell us to do. And I don't know your will in this, but I know that you hear me and I want your will to be done. Now I'm just giving, I'm, I'm pouring out my care to him because he says, cast all your care to him. And then I'm pouring it out to him and then I'm trusting that God's will be done. Now on the flip side of that, we always talk about that side of prayer. On the other side of it, what if God doesn't answer our prayer in the way that we wanted? But you gave it to him and God, you said, God, your will be done. 
and then God didn't heal that person. Don't come back and say, well, God, why didn't you do it? I prayed about it. Hold on. You said thy will be done. Here's our prayer. God, thank you for hearing me. And I trust that they're with you. Give us the grace to get through this or whatever it may be. And so we got to be, be careful on the other side of our amen. I read a book called The Other Side of Amen or something like that. But on the other side of your amen, if you've given this to God, you've got to make sure that you praise him afterwards no matter what happened if you don't know his will. But I'm getting sidetracked on that. I didn't mean to. But we pray. We can have confidence that God does hear you. God wants you to pray and God does hear you pray. The problem is that we often just don't pray. Because notice what he said in verse 14. He says, if we ask. Why would there be an if? If we know that we have access to the creator of this world, why would we not pray? But a lot of times we just don't. We know that's consistent with James when he says, you have not because you ask not. So we know that if we ask, that's on us. We've got to ask, but he will hear us. And we can know that whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Pray confidently. It's a a dangerous church when you have a church full of people that will pray confidently. That's a dangerous church. Not for us. Not dangerous dangerous for Satan. Because a lot of things can get done. And I want you to just think about right now. You are sitting in Cunot. Does anyone know how big Cunot is? It's like 15 people. I mean, Cunot is so small. This class right here is probably bigger than Cunot. I don't know. It's so small. How can, I was standing in this room two away from us earlier, and we were praying, and I had my eyes open, me and Becca do that from time to time, and we were standing in that room, and somebody was praying, and as they were praying, I was standing, and I was thinking about, which a lot of you may not know, I was thinking about, that was a little white building one time, and I was like, and I was thinking, as they were praying, I was kind of praying too, but I was thinking, I was like, I used to sit in a red pew pretty close to this spot right there. And I was actually, while we were praying, I was like, it's actually right behind where Caleb is standing. I was still praying, but I was thinking this. And I thought, I used to get ushered out this door right here and go get spanked on the steps right back there. <laughs> and, but I was, I was like, how did we come from a little white church, and it was even smaller before I was born, to everything that we see right here right now in a town of Cunot that's so small. It's probably because there were some people that took verses 14 and 15 serious and they said, hey, we can have confidence that God hears us and so let's just pray. And as they prayed, people got saved and as they prayed, pastors came and as they prayed, children came and as they prayed, they grew and we've seen things happen but we've we've got to be a church that prays. And if we don't have confidence in our salvation, then we're not going to have confidence in our prayer life. But if you have confidence in your, in your salvation, you have confidence in your prayer life, that is, a, that is a Christian that's going to shake the world. It's going to make a difference. But now let's continue. Because now we get into the verse that, some verses everybody wants to ask, not ask about, but they'll come to eventually. It says, If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, He shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not unto death. Now, a lot of people read this verse, and then all of a sudden, right to my office when I was a pastor, what is this? What is the sin unto death? I don't want to do that sin. And this leads to the question. Now, if you just run to that verse... And then run to your pastor's office, though you've missed the greater context. Here's what he's saying. 
If your brother or sister in Christ is in sin, pray for them. That's, that's, the greater, that's the greater message right here. They get so sidetracked because we all want to know, what's a sin unto death? I don't want to commit that sin. What is it? The sin unto death is skipping Sunday school. Okay, just so you know that. Just so you know that. That's the sin unto death. See you guys next week. All right? No. No. But he's saying the greater context is, hey, pray for your brother or sister that's in Christ, that's, that's struggling with sin. When I was reading that and thinking about that this week, it was kind of convicting because sometimes I will pray for those that are struggling with sin. And other times, you know what I'll do? I'll give up on them or criticize them. That, that, that's a tendency of mine. Oh, they don't care. If they cared, they would come. Or if they cared, they would stop. They just don't care. They've given up. They don't want to walk with God. And that all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, who is that? And you can get discouraged. You can get, you can get deflated. I remember when I was pastoring, sometimes just I, I would, at Saturday nights before the service, I would go into the auditorium and walk. And I'd just walk around the auditorium and pray. But sometimes it would just be discouraged thinking, or Sunday evenings, I would go back and say, well, no one came. Hardly anybody was there. Where was this person? Where was this person? And you, get, you, you can, as a pastor, get the, the Monday depression, discouragement. Like, well, that service just seemed like a flop. And this person didn't come. And this person. And you start to get discouraged. And I think in this, the main context of this, he's saying this to people. Pray for your brother or sister that's in sin. You don't, have to, you don't have to enable them in their sin, but pray for them. And don't give up on them. Pray that they, that they get right with God and, and pray that they come back to church and, and do what you can to have a godly influence on them, whether it's only prayer, whether it's through talking to them, but pray for them. It's easy to criticize. Any one of us can do that. It's easy to give up. Anyone can do that, but pray for them that they return. I think that's the greater context. But what is this sin unto death? I don't think it's a specific sin. It's not a specific sin. It's not something you can do and God's going to kill you. Because we could look, Ananias and Sapphira just didn't give and God killed them on the spot. Uh, going back to the Old Testament, some people offered some incense and they weren't supposed to and they died on the spot. So you can go all these different things. The sin unto death is just the time when you just, when you just sin and sin and sin without any thought, any concern. And if God just chooses when he wants just to take you out, just go. So... The flip side of that is some people, every time a Christian dies, and if it's early, they think, oh, what did he do? You're all sitting at the funeral being very nice, but you're thinking, did they do something that God took him out? Or maybe I'm just the only one that thinks that. But, uh, but sometimes we can think that. It's like, did they do? But hey, that's not our, this, verse, this question right here, we'll, we don't know. And what, the next part that I'm going to get to should just wipe this whole, the whole question about that out. Is there a sin unto death? Yes. Is it a specific sin? I don't think so. At some point, if you just continue to live in sin and you no longer have a testimony for Jesus Christ, your testimony is actually worse for Jesus than it is good, he could take you out if he wants to. He's sovereign. He could do that. When is that point? I don't know. How many times do I have to sin before I can get there? I don't know, Peter. It's 70 times 7, okay? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's not a number. It's not. He doesn't tell. This is the only thing he puts about it and it's in a greater context that instead of worrying about if you have to worry about that here's all you got to do confess your sin and get right because the next part is what what he what is i think we need to be focused on verse 18 he says we know there's our no again that whosoever is born of god sinneth not Uh oh there's another tough verse in our english version it looks tough so if i'm a christian i don't sin 
All right, uh, let's just play a fun game here. All right, real quick. How many in here are a Christian? You know if you died, you'd go to heaven. Raise your hand. If you're a Christian, raise your hand. My wife will not raise her. She hates raise your hand things. That's what, she says, anybody ask me to raise my hand, I'm not raising my hand. But when you ask if you're a Christian, you better raise it. All right, so everybody I think in this room is a Christian. Now, don't have to raise your hand on this one, but how many committed a sin this week? Don't raise your hand or point to your spouse, but did you commit a sin this week? Raise your hand in your mind. All right, did you commit a sin this week? Okay, I think we got our answers. Lock it in. Now look at that verse again. It says, He that is born of God sinneth not. So, let's have an invitation. If you all get saved again, then I can tell everybody, 20 people in my class got saved today, all right? No, he's not saying that you're not a Christian if you sin. So what is he saying? The, the word, it's hard to see in our English. It is in the present tense. So he continues to sin. He lives a life of habitual sin. It's got the context of what I've already talked about. If, if you say you're a Christian, but we can't see anything. By saying we, I don't even like to phrase that because I'm not a fruit inspector. It's not my job to check and see whether you have any fruit. But if you call yourself a Christian, but there's been zero change in your life, you have no indication that you love God. Oh, I, can't, I just can't see anything. But at the end of your life, they say all kinds of nice things at the funeral or they say so-and-so is a Christian and all of us are looking like, I had no idea. You couldn't tell by the way they said things and the way they did things and where they went. And when, I mean, I had no idea. Now, it's not my place to make that determination. I always say that's God's decision. But in my mind, I have my own decisions. I have my own thoughts. But he says here, if the life, a Christian, if you're born of God, there's not a life of just habitual sin with no change. Now, all of us have committed some sins multiple times. Some of you, when I said, have you sinned this week? Some of us may say, I've sinned several times this week. Is that habitual sin? No. Habitual sin is just the idea of my life is more characterized by sin than it is by Jesus Christ. That person is probably not born of God. But ultimately, it's not my call or your call. It's God's. So we may get to heaven and be like, I don't think we're going to get to heaven to say this, but like, oh, didn't know I was going to see you here. It's good to see you. I guess they were right at that funeral when they said you were such a, all these things. It may, I don't know how it's going to work. But the idea is, he's saying, a Christian should not be characterized by life of continual sin. Because the whole reason Jesus died is to free us from our sins. We're, yes, we're free from our past sins and our future sins, but right now we are to live in victory. And so that's why I say you don't need to worry about the sin unto death if you're doing what this whole text is about, walking in fellowship with God. Because if I'm walking in fellowship with God, I don't want to sin. And when I do, I'm broken over and I say, God, would you forgive me for this sin? I don't want this sin in my life. And so then I don't have to look over my shoulder. Is God going to kill me for that one? I've confessed it to God. I'm dealing with it. That's a life that's a Christian life. The Christian life is one that when we sin, we're broken over it and we confess it. If you can sin and sin and sin and it doesn't bother you a bit, that's the time you start to go, oh, I got a problem. I got a problem. One of two things are probably the problem. Either one, you've hardened your heart so hard against God that you need an intervention. You, you need to get broken before God. Or two, you may not be saved. Not my call. But if you can sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and you never confess it to God and it doesn't bother you a bit, I, there's something concerning. Because the Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And he tells us here that, let me just continue to read, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. Remember that word keepeth? 
It means to guard. So if you're a begotten of God, if you're a child of God, you want to guard yourself that the wicked one toucheth him not. The word toucheth there has the idea of a strong grip. It's not just like a touch. It's like a grip. And he's saying, you as Christians need to guard your heart so that Satan doesn't get a grip on you. You know what a grip is, right? A grip is a grip of sin is when you're doing when you're committing some sin and you can just feel it. It is just pulling you down. It's taking your emotions. It's taking your actions. It's taking you out of church. It's taking you out of your Bible reading. It's taking you out of prayer. I mean, it is just Satan has a grip on you, and you know it. You're wrestling with it, but boy, Satan has a grip. When we, if we don't guard ourselves, that's why I, I love the end of this verse. He says we've got to guard ourselves because Satan wants to get a grip on us. That's the the wicked one. He wants a grip. It reminds me of that verse in Ephesians chapter four, I believe, when he says, "Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath." What's in the very next verse? It says, "Lest ye give place." To the devil. The word place is like the idea of a stronghold. And it's the same idea we see right here that we've got to make sure that in our lives that we are guarding ourselves from sin and confessing our sin and getting it right immediately. Because if we don't, the wicked one, Satan, will touch it. It gets a grip in your life. And when Satan gets a grip in your life, it may start something small but it begins to expand into your life to a variety of ways that all of a sudden it may have started with one sin of, of this little thing and now it's, it's exploded into something much greater. Why? Because you've not guarded yourself. You've got to be on guard because Satan will try to get in whatever crevice he can to try to destroy your life. And so he says, guard yourself from the wicked one. If I'm on guard, think about this now. If I'm on guard and I'm guarding myself against Satan, and when I do sin, I confess it and get it right because I don't want Satan to get any grip on me. I'm confessing, I'm getting right. Then I don't need to be worrying all the time, right, about that one verse. I'm just kind of picking on that verse for a second. And there's nothing wrong with asking questions about that verse. But what I'm saying is you don't need to worry about the sin unto death that so many people worry about. If you're constantly guarding yourself and constantly when you do sin, confessing it to God. I think that's part of guarding. Part of guarding is when, hey, when I do wrong, I'm going to confess it and get it right to God. That's protecting your heart. And you don't have to worry, did I just commit the sin unto death? No. So he goes on, he says, verse 19, and we know, there's that phrase again, that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know, verse 20 again, that phrase, that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know, there's our word again, him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And this, this verse is going along with the others. He's, he's referring to this, that we can know that we are in Jesus Christ and we need to abide in him. This is the idea of the whole, he's bringing these themes up again that he's talked about throughout the book, that we just got to abide in Christ. We got to be in fellowship with him. If I stay in fellowship with him, which means when I sin, confess it, get it right immediately. Don't continue to walk in sin. Stay in fellowship with God, which means dealing with my sins, staying in prayer, communication with God, reading the word of God, allowing him to speak to my heart. It's just that fellowship relationship with God. When you're there, you're the strongest you could possibly be. You're in the best place to grow. 
It's like, it's like a plant in our garden that's being watered, the sunshine. Everything's perfect for that plant. You see it to grow. That's the perfect place for a Christian to be when they're abiding in Christ. They're allowing the Word of God into their hearts. They're spending time in prayer. They are confessing their sin. You in the strongest place you can be. Notice I did not say when you do not sin. Because even John, the author, says you're going to sin. There's the flesh that really is tempting. You're going to sin, but confess it. Get it right. And then the very last verse. It's interesting how he finishes it. He's going to use a word he hasn't used this whole time. But he says, little children, he's used that phrase, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. So idol is anything that replaces God. I don't think he's telling us today that we don't need to be bowing down to little statues in our house. Though it may have been the case, he's writing to some churches even in Ephesus then. They had the, the, the goddess of Diana there, and they would have some, some statues. He could have been in, implying that to them. But idols is anything that replaces God. And, he's, and so he's saying to us in this final verse, he's already encouraged us to, to know Christ, to pray, to stay in fellowship with him. But he's saying, don't allow anything in your life that's going to replace God. There are a lot of idols out there today. Let me get you involved here for a second, if you want. What are some modern-day idols? Modern-day idols, not statues that we bow down to. I mean, in America today, what are some modern-day idols that replace God? Facebook. Facebook, okay. Phones. Phones. TV. TV, money. Hollywood, okay. Some people are going to replace God today with a boat. Not that buying a boat's bad. <laughs> I just thought about it after I said this. Like, oh, Apple just bought a boat. All right. Backtrack, backtrack now. A boat's not wrong. I'd love to have a boat. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but for some people, I mean, that's, that replaces, replaces God. Um, some people, they... Television replaces God. There's nothing wrong with television, but boy, if you can just sit there in front of that and, and zone out and give God zero time in your day, has it become an idol? Has it replaced God? A lot of things could replace God. A garden could replace God, I guess. If I spent, which I wouldn't, but if I spent hours in a garden and gave God zero time, it could replace God. Any, here's the thing. Anything could replace God. I used to have a guy that would pick on me, and I'm done with this little story. I, by picking on me, I meant he would literally criticize me. But still, I was his I was assistant pastor at the time, and I would teach or talk about sports when I would give an illustration because I like sports. And I was talking about golf and things like that. And this guy absolutely hated sports. Absolutely hated sports. He would not let his girls. He had he had like 19 girls, it seemed like, and he wouldn't let any of them play sports. They were all in their musical instruments and pretty talented, and he wouldn't let any of them play sports. And if you talked about sports, he was going to lecture you after the service. Now... I don't like controversy. I do not like debating unless you're that type of person. Then I don't care. And uh, so I, was, I preached a message. I talked about taking my Mariah, who was a little, little kid at the time, golfing. And we spent some time together as a dad and a daughter. And we just spent some time and played some golf, had some fun. I don't remember what my illustration was, but I said something about that. And I came out. You know, at the service, you're shaking hands. And here he comes, shaking his head like, oh, here we go. So I just unbutton the shirt, you know. I, like, here we go. He goes, you know you're wrong, don't you? I go, what is it this time? Now, what, I, what he did not know, and it was the timing was crazy, I had had a pull cart from golfing. Somebody borrowed mine, and they were walking it up as he's talking to me to bring it to me. 
And I was just thinking, just stop. Just don't bring it up here. It's going to add to it. And the guy walks it right up to me. So as he's, he's shaking his head and comes to me, this guy goes, hey, here's your pull cart for golf. I'm like, oh, boy. And he's like, he goes, he points at it. You know you're wrong, don't you? I'm like, well, how am I wrong? This stuff's an idol for your kids. You're just, this is an idol for your kids. You're going to teach them that they have to play sports and it's going to replace God, and you're wrong for that. And I thought, what do I do here? And I thought, eh, let's just go. So I said, you see that musical instrument your daughter's carrying over there? I said, that can be just as much of an idol as this golf cart. No, it's not. She's playing that music for Jesus Christ. I said, doesn't matter. Your daughter can grow up and play that thing for eight hours and spend zero time in the Bible, and this become just as much as an idol as my three-hour golf round. And you don't know if before the three-hour golf round, as I was studying the Bible and reading and spent some time in prayer, went out and enjoyed some time with my daughter, and then got right back into it. There's nothing wrong with that. But your daughter may have, or you may have, got her so much into music that she doesn't even think about God, or she may do it for her own glory instead of the glory of God. And I just went off with a smile and shook his hand. And he said, I still think you're wrong. I said, well, that's fine. People say the weirdest things at the door. One guy got on to me because I didn't button my jacket the whole time I spoke. People say the weirdest things. But my point to this guy was anything can become an idol if it replaces God. Anything can. So one may not like gardening, but just because someone gardens doesn't mean it's a god. You may not like sports, but just because... Now, can it be? Has sports become a god to many people? Oh, yeah, it has. Don't get me wrong. It has. But it doesn't mean it does. An idol is anything that in your heart specifically replaces God. And only you're going to know that. And only I'm going to know that. And so we have to guard our hearts in this last part of this lesson. He says we've got to guard our hearts to make sure that we do not, that we do not replace God. And we do not, we keep God on the throne of our hearts. I just had a thought. That was the guy that we saw when we were just in Michigan. We were walking. <laughs> By the way, sidetrack, finish the whole story. We were... We went to Michigan recently for their 100th year anniversary, and we were in this fancy place, Horrocks or something. Was that what it's called? I don't remember what it was called. And we were not fancy at all, but we were looking through stuff, and here he comes in a mask on and everything. And I was like, I told her, I said, keep going, keep going, keep going. That was terrible of me. I, I said, keep going. And, and we got aside like this, and he walked. He didn't even recognize me, probably 40 pounds more and everything. He didn't recognize me, which was probably a good thing. But he was very sweet. When I did leave that town, he did pray with me and everything. He was a, he was a good guy. He's just a... We have a difference of opinion on sports, and um, so I thought it was funny. But my, the, the whole idea behind that is this. L listen, you know your heart right now as we close this up. You know your heart. Is there any idols that are replacing God? Is there any sin in your life that you need to confess? If so, it's worth it because you can know that you have eternal life. You don't have to struggle. You can see God answer prayer in your life, but we got to stay in fellowship with Him and keep Christ on the throne of your hearts and nothing else. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your faithfulness to 